Welcome back to Juncture Podcast. If this is your first time listening, Juncture represents the connection between films and dreams. I use my multidisciplinary background to examine the deeper meanings in our favorite films and our most bizarre dreams. That is my new intro. Hope y'all enjoy. (laughs) Today I'll be discussing my latest obsession, Midnight Mass. It is a supernatural horror limited series currently available on Netflix. It's by the same guy that brought us The Haunting of Hill House and The Haunting of Bly Manor, uh, Mike Flanagan, creator and director of Midnight Mass. Uh, Many of the cast members reappear in his works. Um, I recognize several of the actors from Hill House and Blind Manor. Midnight Mass stars Zach Guilford, Kate Siegel, Hamish Linkletter, Samantha Sloyan, Rahul Cooley, and Henry Thomas. The plot centers on an isolated island community that experiences supernatural events after the arrival of a mysterious priest. Google had a synopsis that I liked a little bit better. Google said the arrival of a charismatic, and I want to emphasize charismatic, priest brings miracles, mysteries, and renewed religious fervor to a dying town. I kind of got hung up. I was like, fever, fever, fervor, fervor, fervor. That's another one of these words that I can't pronounce. And English is my first language. Um, (laughs) This won't be so much of an analysis as it will be more of me just gushing about how much I love the show. As always, spoiler alert, if for some insane reason you haven't seen the show already, please turn back now, go watch it, and then come back and listen to the podcast. Now, onward to the episode. So the cast, uh, Katie, not Katie Siegel. I feel like Katie, oh no, that's Seagal, uh, I think, similar to the lady who was on Married with Children. But anyway, Kate Siegel as Aaron Green. Um, Riley's childhood sweetheart is now a school teacher on Crockett Island and is expecting a child. Zach Guilford is Riley Flynn, a former venture capitalist who returns to his hometown of Crockett Island after spending four years in prison for killing a woman in a drunk driving accident. That's heavy. Kristen Lehman is Annie Flynn, Riley's devout forgiving mother, Samantha Sloyan as Bev Keen, I can't stand Bev, a zealous and overbearing member of St. Patrick's Church and an influential figure in the community. Igby Rigney as Warren Flint, Riley's teenage brother who serves as an altar boy at the church. His name is a tongue twister, Igby Rigney. Interesting. Rahul Kohli as Sheriff Hassan, Crockett Island's Muslim sheriff, 
who finds it difficult to fit in the town's predominantly Christian population. Anara Simone as Lisa Scarborough, the mayor's devout daughter who uses a wheelchair following an entry. Annabeth Gish as Dr. Sarah Gunning, the town's local doctor and Aaron's close friend. Alex Esso as Mildred Gunning, Sarah's aging mother who has dementia. Rahul Aburi as Ali Hassan, the sheriff's son and friend of Warren and Uker. Matt Bedell as Sturz, the island handyman. Michael Truco as Wade Scarborough, the mayor of Crockett. Um, that's also uh, Lisa's uh, father. Um, Crystal Ballant as, as Dolly Scarborough, Wade's wife and Lisa's mother. Louis Oliver as Uker, Warren and Ali's friend who also serves as an altar boy at the church. Henry Thomas as Ed Flynn, Riley's father who worked as a fisherman and is reluctant to welcome his son home. Finally, my favorite character on the show, Hamish Linkletter as Father Paul Hill, the enigmatic new priest at St. Patrick's Church, who arrives to replace the aging Monsignor Pruitt temporarily. It's a lot of folks. But um, I feel you really get a sense of the, it's a lot of people. Not everyone, I guess, gets equal time, but you, you get really get to know people during this limited series. It's, I believe, seven episodes. So you could potentially watch this all in one sitting. So I'm going to start off with my favorite, uh, favorite character, as I mentioned. Uh, my favorite character is, of course, Father Paul. I really enjoyed his interactions with Riley. I liked their uh, really back and forth dialogue. I felt so, okay, so I already did the spoiler alert, but spoiler alert. So Father Paul is is um, a younger version of Monsignor Pruitt. Um, and I think I would assume that people are used to sort of, uh, I, I don't know, I don't want to say the people in town. I am used to religious uh, figures, priests, ministers, reverends, behaving in a certain way. And um, it's very um, interesting when you sort of have these uh, religious um, figures that are very, that seem very casual or just very open or very comfortable with sort of having this dialogue with someone whose views are really opposing to your own. And there was a lot of that interaction between Father Paul and Riley. Um, Riley grew up on the island. His mother is very devout, very religious. So is his father. And um, he became, um, I guess, atheist in his, in his adult life. And um, just hearing his interaction with Father Paul, um, when he came back to the island, he was on parole. And part of his parole, he had to go to NA or uh, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, Father Paul suggests, um, instead of you having to go to the mainland for your AA, why don't I apply with the parole officer and you can have your AA here on the island with me? 
Um, and I was like, you know, that's a good thing to do. But um, now looking back, I think that was sort of Father Paul's way to bring people um, to sort of attempt to sort of save Riley and sort of give him this second chance at life um, the way he initially wanted for himself when he brought the ghoul, the angel, whatever he is. I want to discuss that a little bit later on, but that was his initial reason for bringing the ghoul back to the island, this horrible secret that just changed everyone's life forever. Um, So I, I feel like his interaction and his relationship with Riley came from a good place, but I also feel feel that uh, it was also from a selfish place because I think his whole premise of coming back to the island and wanting to bring something back for other people was fueled by this, this selfish need, which I'm going to discuss later on. So I, I'm kind of torn in between you know, I feel bad for what happened, but um, I feel like it could have been avoided if if he had. I mean, yeah, it could have. It definitely could. Obviously, it could have been avoided if he hadn't brought the ghoul back to the island. But this sort of fueled by this selfish, this uh, selfish need or belief that he deserved to have a second chance and it wasn't of he was I felt like he was sort of talking himself into it and that this was this sort of divine intervention of that I uh, Monsignor Pruitt have a a lot of regret in my life this is my uh, divine intervention for me to have a second chance because I, I deserve it I've served my lifelong um, for the Lord and and for the betterment of the community, and I've I've denied myself of my own wants, my own selfish wants, to serve uh, my faith, and so for that I deserve to have a second chance, and that whole premise on that just really it messed it just it messed up everybody, you know it just it just messed up everybody, but I'm gonna get into that later on um i i really enjoyed his his way of looking i didn't agree with it all the time but i enjoyed his take on it and like the google um synopsis he was very um what it's a charismatic uh where am i at in my outline i'm trying to find things out yeah charismatic he's very charismatic and very charming um I liked his uh, refineness of like holding his composure and being very steady throughout this whole ordeal because it's he he just kept it together really well. So it it goes into you being able to have faith in this man because you know he's so calm he has it together despite hiding this hideous ghoul that he's brought back from somewhere uh, on his pilgrimage to, of, of like I, it's part of his charm 
um, of his character to be able to be trusted and to look to for guidance because he's calm under pressure and everything. That's a really great quality to have someone who is like sort of an authority figure, a leader. But it was also his the downfall of the community because they look to him for guidance and you know, if they're looking at him and he's calm in the middle of this, then surely the what's going on isn't really insane, it isn't odd and isn't terrifying because Father Paul is so calm, you know, just we'll just go with it. Everything's okay. Um, and that kind of helped everyone put their guard down. It's brilliant. Um, I really enjoyed a lot of the monologues on the show. The ones I didn't enjoy was Riley's monologues, uh, especially when he was talking with Aaron. Um, I just felt Riley and Aaron's interaction was like a snooze fest. Um, I I didn't feel there was anything thought provoking about, um, about their particular experience. Um, their interactions with each other I didn't feel it was particularly moving or emotional and it was just kind of blah I it was just spent too much time on that I just I I I enjoyed Riley and Father Paul's interaction the most but and even and I think it was towards the end when Aaron had a monologue I was like can we go to somebody else I I wanted someone else to have the airtime, another character, because I just, I did not enjoy, I just didn't like her take on things, but it, it just didn't feel like it brought anything else new to the concept or new to the conversation of the afterlife and what happens to when, when we die. Um, I was on Reddit one time, this is I think a recent post somewhere on Reddit, but they were talking about what happens on the afterlife. And the common theme of people when they, you know, when they talk about what happens when we die, you have the religious people that have this really happy-go-lucky thing about it that's, you know, soothing and comforting. And then you have the people who are like, oh, I think nothing's going to happen. I don't worry about it. And I'm like, who are y'all to just, I don't, I don't, I don't know how people do it. I don't know how people not worry or not terrified. The conversation that I would have liked to have had or liked to have witnessed people have is that how the unknown is actually very terrifying and that the whole idea why people hang on to uh, religious belief is partially because it's comforting. And I'm like, are we being honest here? Are people really being honest? Is no one talking about I mean, are people genuinely not terrified? You know, I would like to have this this conversation with people. Are there are people that are like me? They're actually terrified of the afterlife and and what happens in the unknown. But it was the the cliche conversation between the religious Aaron and the atheist Riley, who was like, "I'm fine with it. I'm I'm completely fine." I'm like, "All right then." Uh, you know, I wanted to hear a conversation I hadn't heard before. And I, I never hear people talk about that, about the the idea of being terrified of what happens because you don't know. 
you are always are always playing it cool. Either way, whether you're coming from a religious standpoint or an atheist standpoint, people are always, you know, playing it really cool. And I'm like, just let's someone needs to keep it 100 because I I don't believe people when they're just like, I'm okay with it. Um, I don't know. But anyway, yeah, I I didn't I didn't like. I Riley was one of my least favorite characters. Aaron coming a close second. Um, Bev was a character that I hated, but I also loved her because she provoked so much emotion from me for her. Uh, the portrayal of of Bev, the actor's portrayal of Bev, I was just. I was cussing this lady out um, with each new episode because it was just infuriating. Um, but she was so good and she was, the character was so passionate about her beliefs and it was so twisted and sad and uh, enraging. But um, she, I mean, she was, she's definitely my most, the most hated character, but also after Father Paul, she's my the the most beloved character for me. Definitely Bev. And uh the next the next topic that I'm going to discuss are favorite scenes and Bev is in one of my favorite scenes. She the actor, um her name is what is her name? Samantha Slow Sloan. Sloan? probably didn't pronounce it right, Samantha Sloyan as Bev uh, was so good and so disturbing. Um, but I like the little backstory that, I like the little backstory that the little things that you learned about Bev's character and you sort of see um, her for who she really is. And it's like there's something that's developing throughout the seven episodes to the very end. And I just love her little character and how evil and manipulative she is. It's so good. So I ordered the scenes in my... Um, well, I guess they're not really in order. Uh, but this first scene that I'm going to discuss is my favorite, favorite scene from the movie. I mean, from the from the show. Um, it is episode three when Lisa forgives Joe Colley. Oh my God! So there are so many scenes in this in this show where I was like crying, like I was tearing up during this scene. In the end, I was tearing up like the whole scene, tearing up when like um, Ali and Sheriff Hassan are like praying um, when uh, Riley's parents meet up when uh the two kids are looking at the town on fire at the very end um when uh what's another one? Oh my god when monsignor i mean father paul i mean they're the same person when father paul and and his daughter and his his uh i mean it's not his side chick um <laughs> The love of his life, that scene was like really, oh my God. Um, there are so many, but anyway, top favorite scene. I posted this on Twitter and on my Facebook. Oh my God, it's so good. 
Um, Lisa, she tells Joe Colley, you stole from me. Not just who I was, but who I could have been. You stole from me things I didn't even have yet. You reached through time, Joe Colley. You reached through time and you stole. I that like if you there's a clip of it on YouTube and her delivery, her like I mean monologues can be really bad, like how I hated the monologues between Aaron and Riley and then Aaron's monologues. But this one is like really good. It's so passionate and emotional and you sort of feel the 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 pain and the the regret and the uh wanting of forgiveness especially from Joe Carly. I was just like, "Oh my god." Um and I wanted so I wanted so much. Like I felt bad. I I I I understood by this I guess by this time no, I think it was later on. I think later on it's revealed sort of how uh, Joe, Joe Colley's backstory. And it's like you look back and, and to this scene where Lisa's forgiven Joe. And I wanted some, I wanted him to take that, that um, forgiveness from Lisa and for him to also forgive himself and to find something just to to find a better life like off of this island um i you don't get the full backstory but i feel like something happened in joe carly's life and he's trapped himself on this island and um he's sort of caught in this addiction of drinking and sorrow and regret and like anger and depression I don't know it just seemed like there was a lot going on with him and I want to say I I feel like I kind of got the feeling that he might have been trying to kill himself in the woods with his shotgun and like missed or something and like the stray bullet hit Lisa I just feel like there was more to that story uh, why he was out in the woods. It wasn't hunting season. What was he doing out in the woods with his rifle? And the fact that he's like this alcoholic. And he's trapped on this depressing island. With like no family. His sister left the island. He's all there by himself. And it's like you could have went anywhere in the world. You don't have no kids. You don't have no responsibility. It's just you and your dog. What are you still on this this island that's just dying slowly? Like why are you still here? And um it just seemed like there was something else more to that but so the rest of her of Lisa's monologue um she goes on to say all of that is true and all of that is still here but that's not why I came here today I came here today I came here today I forgive you Joe Colley I forgive you and I see you now I see you and I'm still angry with you but it's different even now, just saying it, it's different. Do you want to know why? And then he like responds and then she goes on to say, because the only thing standing between you and a better life is you. The only thing standing in my way was hate. The only thing, the only thing standing in your way is you. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit, then he, then he who takes the city. 
That's Proverbs Proverbs 16.32, Joe. Do you know what Proverbs means? What the book of Proverbs is? It means wisdom. Wisdom and knowledge. So if God can forgive you, and he says he can all over the place, he says it, then I can forgive you. And if I can forgive you, Joe Collie, then anyone can. Because the town was kind of like, Joe Collie was like the black sheep of Crockett Island because of, you know, he shot this little girl and she's paralyzed because of it. Um, and they were in, you know, if, if the girl, you know, the person, the actual victim of his crime can forgive him, then surely it should be easier for other people in the town to forgive him. People that he hasn't harmed, you know. But oh, she walked out and Joe Colley was bawling in his trailer and I was like, oh my God. It was, it was a bit of an emotional roller coaster. All these people on this island sort of have this baggage and this grief that they're sort of carrying with them. Like everybody, Lisa, Joe Colley, Riley, Aaron, she comes back to the island with her baggage and grief. Um, his parents, uh, Riley's parents, um, Father Pruitt, he, I mean, he came back with little ghoul and his own personal baggage. You know, he could have died in the desert and just left it alone. And I feel like the island would have been better off. But <laughs> he brings a lot, a lot of baggage back to the island. And uh, it's not really revealed until like later, until like episode six or maybe like episode seven. Um, but I I got a sense that something was up, but I couldn't put my finger on it. But then it's revealed like later on in the series that Father Pruitt and, and um, what's the doctor's name? Um, Sarah had Sarah the Father Pruitt and Sarah's mom. Uh, they had a thing going on, and the man who Sarah thought was her dad is is not her biological father. I mean, he raised her, so that's her dad, but he's not her biological father. Father Paul is her biological father, <sighs> y'all, and I. In the end, like I think it's episode seven, I was looking and I was like, you know what? She does look like. She looks like a female version of Father Paul. And I was like, oh my God. And there was like a scene where she was talking to, I guess it was her date or her girlfriend that she brought to the island. And she was like, Father Paul is always giving me the creeps. Like, look how he's staring at me across the, the lawn. And he's always staring at me like that. Ever since I was a little girl and just made me like, it just he just scared me. And I was like, yo, he's staring because he's like, that's my daughter. And I can never say anything. I can never do anything. I can never acknowledge this fact or anything. And I'm like, oh my God. The bag is that you carry and that... He was in love with her with her mom and and they didn't get married because he's a priest and that was against the the church you know and I was like I'm like were they getting it on when he was a priest I mean it had to have been I mean that had to have been why he he didn't like they didn't get married and she married some other dude because I think it was the dude went he went to war and um I don't know if she got pregnant after he went 
or before or while he was gone but when he came back he was like I can't you know I can't leave him now he just come back from the war he was injured and and all this stuff and I was like oh my god and then this it it was the whole reason that he brought the ghoul back I mean just so frustrating so anyway (laughs) the episode three where Lisa forgives Joe Colley is like my number one favorite scene. I got really off off track. Um, my next favorite scene, um, it's not really, it's not really a scene. It's just something that Bev says that I thought was really good and just really shows who, it shows Bev's character and just like, a few you know just like one line it tells me everything i need to know about Bev. so in episode six she says uh as wise as serpents and as innocent as innocent as doves that was her that was that one line um she goes on to say uh, i'm sorry to have to say this sorry to have to think this way but the world is the world and we have to be smart about this and then that's when she says, as wise as serpents and as wise as serpents, as innocent as does. She, so this is episode six when Father Pruitt is like, I want to bring Riley into our fold. I want to make him one of us. And Bev was like, I don't think you should do that because, you know, or she says, well, she's saying she's disagreeing with him that he shouldn't have done that. Like he shouldn't have let him go after he brought him into the fold and made him one of them. Riley goes off and he was like, you know, he's he's going to be back. You know, he's going to be fine. I'm going to trust that he's going to be back. But Bev, Bev was right because letting Riley go sort of set off this chain of the people who were like something's going crazy going on this town it set off the the chain reaction of now we have to try to save this town so there was like this opposing force that really helped um sort of defeat the evil that was on the island and bring bev and take down bev and then bring um father paul to his senses so bev was right um you know, to not trust Riley, to not trust that he was not going to try to stop him. And I don't know why Father Paul did that, because, I mean, she had a good point. He I mean, I, I think maybe Father Paul assumed that Riley was I don't know that Riley was broken enough that he would he would. I don't know, side with him and he. I don't know. I, I felt like he 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 may have thought Riley was weak in some way. Um but anyway, it she is she is working Father Paul. I don't know. I, I don't I don't know if Father Paul knew it or realized it, but she was she was working Father Paul. She's manipulating him. And that one line when she says as wise as serpents as innocent as doves i feel like that's bev that's 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 all bev she's 
as wise and, and sneaky as a sneaky serpent. Um, but she also tries to come off as very innocent and, uh, you know, like she doesn't know anything. Like she's just this faithful Christian, um, just honest and moral um, and so above everyone else. Like she's just so pure and innocent. And, I'm, and that's, that's, that's not Bev at all. She is uh, conniving, manipulative, scheming, plotting, vengeful and spiteful, especially, especially towards the end. You really start to see I, mainly in in the the seventh episode, the last episode is when you just she's you just see how vengeful and spiteful she is that she could have saved people if she wanted to. But she didn't because she she wanted to be the leader and she wanted to be in control. Uh, so her having this uh, that rec center and burning down every other structure on the building, she was able to sort of have this sort of leverage. You know, the sun's coming up. And y'all not going to have no place to seek shelter but this rec center. And the rec center is, I don't know, some kind of insurance fraud. I forgot what was going on. But there was just something not honest about how she got this rec center. And it it, proved, it just felt like she was scheming from like long, long time ago. Like she wanted people to be in her rec center, in her place, on her ground, on her terms, so she could sort of control them and, and, and have this sort of uh, rule over other people. She wanted to have this sort of influence like Father Paul, but while she's smart, she's not likable or charming. And so she's not able to have that sort of effect on people. People come to her and respect her. People laugh at her behind her back. They don't respect her. They don't like her. Um, and she she would have, I, I think, loved to have, have gotten this sort of power and control on her own without Father Paul, which she tried to do in the end because she was riding his coattails throughout the, the show and probably the same way when he was, you know, the older version, Monsignor. I'm just like riding his coattails, riding his coattails into the afterlife. And, you know, as being this humble servant and, and getting to the kingdom. Um, I believe she was hoping to ride, ride his coattails on into the afterlife. Um, but I'm not one to judge. But I'm like, I don't think Bev would have made it into the, into the, the kingdom. I don't. <laughs> Beb is evil. I don't think she should have made it. I don't. I don't think she would have. But you know, um, who am I? It's not my place. But um, yes, her her freaking rec center was like her chance to do this and to have this sort of power and control over the other people and to be able to look down him, down on them. She's like, I have the only structure in here I saved you if it wasn't for me you'd all be dead and so to have that sort of um something to throw back at people's face like if it wasn't for me you wouldn't be here like you owe me 
and um the, that could also be a way for her to manipulate people if they felt like they owed her you know they they would feel bad about you know maybe not treating her a certain way or feel bad about not doing something that she asked them to do it's like you know what was it for bad I'd, I'd be ashes right now <laughs> um so I was just like Ugh. and um because she burned she burned all these structures out of spite and, and, and vengeance. She wanted revenge. And her burning these buildings bring me to episode seven, her Bev's let it burn speech. I would say this is my second favorite scene. She looks completely insane in this movie. She's got blood on her little... Um, I don't know what is her little robe, her little church clothes. It's like blood, like a, a blood-shaped bib on her church clothes that are all white. And the glow of the house burning beside her. is Her face is glowing. Her eyes are large. She looks insane. Um, it's a great scene visually. You sort of see, you see in that moment, sanity is slipping away from Bev and she is she is completely have she's lost her mind she's 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 gone you, you see it's slipping out of her eyes as she's looking <sighs> maniacally off into oblivion I, I believe she's she's looking into someone's eyes but Yo, it just looks like she's just kind of looking off into somewhere and her eyes are like big and glossy. <laughs> she looks, she's just crazy. Um, <laughs> but her speech, um, so the guy who's with her, uh, I think it's Sturge. I think Sturge is his name, um, is the guy that's with her. <laughs> she, and he's like, I don't think we should burn all the houses, Beth. And they've just set a house on fire and the flames are like shooting out the windows. And like I said, Bev is glowing. She has this this glow. It's like the hellfire around her. Is She's glowing and she's losing her mind. But her response, she's, she sounds so out of it. But she's so, um, so uh, eloquent in what she's saying. You know that she is um that she is sort of in between losing it but she's still very much present present enough to sort of eloquently you know bring about this verse bring about this uh verse that perfectly describes what she's what's going on or in her mind what is going on uh, because I feel like she's giving herself this very much uh, authoritative sort of God complex. And that she is the one that's creating this fire, this lake of fire and, and, and creating this sort of end of times for the island, this sort of revelations, like a new beginning. I mean, I... I I don't know. I just I I felt like she was uh having this sort of moment where she was feel really feeling herself. Like she 
was seeing herself as bigger than what she actually is, like more important than she actually is. But anyway, Bev says, Revelation. The first angel blew his trumpet and there came hell and fire mixed with the blood and they were hurled to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the free grass was burned up as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters. I, idolaters. I, I feel like I mispronounced that. And all the liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let it burn. Let all of it burn. And I was like, her, her, her need for vengeance and spite and to punish these people and to sort of put them in this hellfire is the reason why they didn't have a place to go. She burned everything else. She told them to set set all the other buildings on fire. And so there was nowhere else to go. So when um, Sarah, I believe, uh, I think it was Sarah, set the the church and eventually the rec center on fire, they, they, they there was zero places because Bev had burned everything. And I was just like, oh, Bev. She was smart, but her her need for vengeance and you know revenge got the best of her. She she could have had what she wanted. I don't know if she would have succeeded, but I mean, at least <laughs> to some you know at some she would have been able to for some time to be able to have what she wanted. But her her her. Her uh, need for revenge got the best of her. But it's what she deserves. It's what she deserves. At the end, I was so glad to see her panic. And to not have that sort of peace wash over her like everyone else did. She was standing on the shore, looking up at the sun as it's starting to rise. And she starts panicking and digging this hole as if that's going to be enough for her to shield her from the sun. I'm like, Beth, it's over. But I just, I loved finally seeing her panic and getting what she deserved after, you know, just being so evil and spiteful to not only the people who were against her, but also the people who were for her and what she believed in. It's like, she, it's, it's what Bev deserved. But that scene that the the last the last part of that where she she just looks I mean, she's just like, let it burn. Let all of it burn. I was like, Bev, you are losing your mind. You've lost it. Like it was just like she lost it. Um <laughs> This you know, it's an episode seven. It's all of episodes. I think episode seven is probably my favorite episode. The last episode is my be- is my favorite. It's the best episode, and um, it really summarizes how everyone was. I felt everyone was really short sighted, and uh, sort of all of their regret, especially after their bloodthirst subsided, was 
was what made it so um, sad and painful that that I think everyone had this sense of grief and sense of loss and regret and to have this opportunity for eternal life to live forever to not die was was very promising and then to have for them to realize that they're not going to have that their whole purpose of doing that because of this loss and this grief and regret that's why they did all this everything they did this for but that short-sightedness and that selfishness what is also what caused their downfall what caused them to go as far as they went in this whole thing I skipped over this but I I think this is in episode six Riley writes a letter to Father Paul and in I mean, it's not so much a letter, it's just a note. And on the note, he wrote, Remember we are dust, and to dust we shall return. And that's what happened when the sun came up. Everyone turned to ashes. Everyone who was not full-pledged vampire ghoul, um, they turned to ashes and they died. And that was, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. I kind of felt like, Riley must have known that evil would not was not going to prevail and that the people who were against it were strong enough and they were going to fight it. But it wasn't so much of the people who were against what Father Paul was trying to do that they were strong enough, but also those who were for it were very selfish and short-sighted. And that coupled with the opposer strength is what brought it to a downfall. I, 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 yeah, I, I think those two things combined are, are what made it. Because I don't think on their own, the opposers, on their own, I don't think they would have made it. I don't think they would have succeeded. I, I don't think things would have happened. But it was the the selfishness, and particularly. Father Paul and Bev that really, really, really they they felt what they wanted or what they were trying to do was so important that they were so important that nothing could stop them. And in fact, that sort of uh, lack of hum- humility, I guess is what you know you would call it, but that sort of self-centeredness is what what really, I mean, more so than Riley and Aaron and, and Riley's parents and his brother and all of them being against it, that was more more powerful. That was more uh, more damaging to their cause. But they thought it was it was conviction. They thought it was having faith. But it's like, it's not your faith. It's just you're being selfish. You're not doing this for other people. You're doing this for yourself. He brought this, Father Paul brought this ghoul back to the island because he wanted a second chance. He had regret that he could He could never love the woman that he loved. He could never be a father to his daughter. And 
he wanted to have a second chance to be in their lives. And it's like, initially, it's not, you didn't, you saw this as your chance at a second chance. Everyone else getting their quote unquote second chance was was a um, sort of like a, a, a afterthought. It was like a, not like a side effect, but like a, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't think of it, but it was just like, it's just a coincidence. Like this is just something, it just happened to be an added, an added benefit to this. But the initial reason of Father Paul doing this was for himself and what he wanted. Um, I I just um, I don't want to get too off track. Let me. Well, it's not too much off track. I just want to stay on my outline. But it it made me angry that the reason that everything happened is because he was only thinking about himself and how this would benefit of himself and that somehow he was more deserving of a second chance than than everyone else because I don't think he was thinking about everyone else initially like it just it was an added benefit it came later I think when he saw himself and he he saw that he was young again he was like, because this is the kind of regret that you, because he can't act on his feelings to the woman that he loves. He can't act on his his need to love and, and, and be a father. And so that's the kind of regret and the loss and the grief of, of not having those relationships. That's the kind of baggage that you carry with you for the rest of your life. Immense baggage. Because it's something that... And I think he was angry. I would say he was angry with God and the church that he made this sacrifice to do this, to be a priest, to be a servant, and that he lost so much while doing that. He missed out on so much. And he was an old man and he was giving like getting dementia and stuff. So it's like he didn't he he didn't even have his memories hold on to and like his life is fleeting he's dying and um he can't go back and he see and he, and he got this opportunity and he sort of twisted into this is divine this is this is from god this is this is good and this is my reward for sacrificing my love for this woman and my love for my child this is my reward that i deserve this that I deserve it more than anyone, and that even I would I would even say that even his desire to help the people of Crockett, that somehow the people of Crockett deserved that they've done whatever it is that he that there are they are so much more deserving that they've done so much and sacrificed so much that they are also really deserving of a ch- second chance, and it comes. And I'm, I'm really getting off track, but it comes from this this idea that that this idea. Okay, I'm not gonna go into that yet. I'm gonna go into it later. I'm not gonna go into it yet because uh, there's just a couple more things I want to talk about. But not getting too into. But that's gonna be my closing statement. So there were s- several plot twists uh, throughout, but 
y'all the most shocking one i literally gasped i was shook um i believe it was episode seven when they introduced the quote unquote angel i say ghoul he's a vampire i don't know what it is i want to say a vampire um but it, it was horrific it was horrific oh my god so they introduced him and father paul is giving this sermon and he's creeping everyone out and sheriff hassan and his son ali are trying to escape they're walking out and when they turn around in the aisle to go to the door there is the ghoul standing up there y'all and he got on like one of father paul's robes like it's like white with gold uh embroidery it's it's a beautiful beautiful garment but <laughs> he's wearing it this ghoul is wearing it i mean i assume it's a guy i mean i shouldn't it could it could have been a woman it it looked genderless i mean it it was a ghoul it could have been male or female but anyway blasphemy he's wearing this this i i'm not catholic you know but i feel like it's it's sacred like it's, it's something special about this and the ghoul should not have had that on he should not have been wearing it i don't know whose idea it was to put him in that i feel like bev it was probably bev i just she's this evil and i imagine that <laughs> it was her idea it's like yeah let's let's put them in put him in the robe for for a dramatic effect gone did the slow walk and people were clutching their pearls they were like hugging their loved ones they were like terrified because just just what is this what is this and so the ghoul has wings and so he's wearing this robe it's like a a cape almost uh, like a poncho um and he's wearing it and his you can kind of see like where his wings are like uh folded down in the back they're like freaking bat wings and oh my god there's this hushed silence of murmurs in the church and it's just it's horrific you i mean you just imagine if like if you did not realize that it was over with that you it, it you see the ghoul, you know, like, okay, we're going to, we're going to see the father. Like, this is, <laughs> this is it. This is, this is the end. There's, there's, there's nothing else. Just, this is it. But that was a great scene. Um, it was just, just, uh, just the, the fear and the panic of like, it's all fun and games until, oh God. And he was having, Father Paul was like throwing out quotes from the Bible about, you know, when people, when they, they saw the, saw angels for the first time, they were afraid. And I'm like, woosa. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, Father Paul, you believe what you want to believe to make you make it seem like what you did is okay. You want to believe this is an angel, fine. Um, but it didn't matter what it was it was angel not i'm out of there at this point these people should have made you know their, their mind should have definitely made up at this point like this is mm -mm. 
this is not right something's going on but uh that's the scene where the angel walks in and the scene following that is just chaos um i don't want to get into it but y'all i mean episode seven is the best it's 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 magnificent it's pure art it is it's a beautiful beautiful episode get the tissue ready because i mean it's just everyone is just so pitiful and it's just so sad it's so good it's so good i love uh mike flanagan's take on horror um it's very it's very rare that you know in modern horror that i find something that i like and i've liked i mean this is the third mike flanagan piece mike mike flanagan joint that um i've enjoyed and i just love his take on it um because his for me his take on it is it's it's what i love about the horror movies that i love and it's the the ones that make you think and um that scares you on a cerebral psychological emotional level where it's not just jump scares and blood and guts i mean this this had a lot of guts and blood but that wasn't and and, okay the ghoul was the ghoul was horrific but (laughs) in these other films too just the horror of the regret and the loss and i you know thinking it's a theme that's in his other the other films that he's done too, Haunting of Hill House, and especially the ending of Haunting of Hill House, and Bly Manor. The ending, the same thing. It's just this, the the sort of fear, and and this film does it too. The sort of fear of the end, and of having this immense regret, and going through sort of life or a very extended period period of time where you have this regret but then with that regret of you know whatever happened didn't happen and you have this loss and you grieve for this extended period of time and that is horrible that's horrific to sort of carry this loss and this grief and regret and realizing that it's the end and not you know for these characters you know they're at the end it's the end and you're faced with this loss and this grief and this regret of something that you didn't do that you wish you had that's horrific psychologically emotionally mentally that's terrifying to know that you're at your end and you're not at peace with how you've lived your life and that you're not at peace with what you've done or what you haven't done and that is a theme in all three of the Mike Flanagan features that I've watched and that also makes it so sad and also that makes it so scary and then you sort of you're questioning your own mortality in this you know and you're thinking I'm I'm thinking about my own personal life and how COVID like halted all these plans I had for 2020 and um, 
realizing that life is short and that people are dying and it's not so much of the fear I mean I'm afraid of the afterlife and what happens that I don't know but it's not so much I don't maybe it's equally the fear of the unknown but also the fear of that coming towards the end or getting older in my life and then having regret like I related to that a lot like I related a lot you know I I I went in on Father Paul for being selfish and self-centered but I also related to that a lot of having regret and sort of this loss of grief of not of what you've had but the life that you wished you had or you wanted to have or you should have had but you didn't because you didn't act on something and realizing that time is going by and and it's fleeting and it's short and things could end tomorrow and it's like well what have you done did you do all the things did I do all the things that I wanted to do life is horrific (laughs) and maybe it's just horror movies that sort of make you sort of think for me about the the immortality or the the mortality I'm not living forever um the mortality of of life of sort of these monsters and these creatures that are beyond your control and they can just swipe down and just end your life and they have powers and strength that are far greater than your own and you can't fight them, you can't beat them, you can't win. I mean, some people have, and I love those horror movies, but that they sort of have this control, and you don't. And you're faced with your own mortality. And something else that I, that I really, that I thought of was um, when Father Paul decided to bring this school back, you know, for his own selfish reasons, <laughs> But uh, it sort of made me think of um, one of the things that I think makes people so angry with religion and faith is that all the power and all the control for things that can happen or not happen is placed in the hands of someone else. And it's like you have no control of your life or your destiny, or at least you feel like you don't. Ultimately, for the faithful, what you have is not control. You don't have control. That sentence came out weird. But <laughs> what you you don't have control and it's in the hands of someone else. And I feel that Father Paul's desire to bring this school back was for this this need for control and wanting to have control of his destiny and like I wanna have control. I want my life to to take this turn. I want this to happen. I want to bring this ghoul back to Crockett Island and I want to save the love of my life and save my daughter and we can start over and we can have a happy life together. This is the kind of control that he wished he had that he didn't. In his in his life he was controlled by the church. You know, he couldn't marry, he couldn't have children and he was also not only controlled by his church but also I guess by proxy controlled by his faith and so he has this one chance to take control and he's like I'm gonna do it 
but he's going to twist it in a way that this is a divine intervention, that I'm doing it for others as well. And, and this, is, this is God giving me a reward for, for, what I, for what I've sacrificed for him. Father Paul, bless his heart. Um, <laughs> but like I said, I really um, related to Father Paul. Another thing that, um, that I don't know if this kind of ties into what I've already said, but I wrote it in my outline, <laughs> uh, was that something that I related to that I've also felt like the people on Crockett Island were feeling was that they wanted religion and God to be something greater, something more powerful than what it actually was. They wanted uh, God, their faith to be more. And I don't, I shouldn't say just them. We, because I also feel this way too. We want magic. We want miracles. We want superheroes instead of angels and, and gods and demons. You know, we want, we want Superman. We want him come down here to save us, to help us, to have this power. And for them, not only, you know, just wanting superheroes, but they sort of wanted, I feel like they sort of wanted to be the superheroes themselves to sort of have this power, this uh, power of immortality. Nothing can touch you. You can't die, you know? I mean, there's the sun. You can die from the sun and all this stuff, but... They're invincible. They're like they are the superheroes of their of their faith. They are like the people they revered in their religion. That's that's some ego something going on. That's that's not humility. That's that's something else that may be against that may not be quite what they should be doing as Christians. But this is also part of Father Father Paul's downfall his flaw, his weakness, not only his selfishness, but also him wanting to, um, maybe that, that could be a part of selfishness, wanting to create this miracle to rejuvenate the faith of the people on Crockett Island, to make them feel like that God is is present for them, especially for them, and that the that we, he, the people of Crockett Island needed, deserved more from God for their faith. And for this, they deserved having this ghoul come and give them everlasting life to give them immortality. He ultimately, like I said, he ultimately wanted uh, a second chance, mainly for himself. Um, Bev, Bev thought that she deserved God's favor more than others. And look down on other people for their shortcomings. So she, I mean, she, I mean, she kind of act like she was with Father Paul, where she was like, "I want the best for the people on the island. You know, I'm looking out for them. You know, they should have the same, you know, immortality. I mean, they they deserve it." But she ultimately felt that she was better than everyone else, and that she was more deserving. And she would make sure she reminded everyone else of it too that you know she was. She was the perfect and and she always did everything right and she deserved out of all the people on Crockett Island. Maybe even more than Father Paul. Maybe uh, maybe she went there, I don't know. 
but she she felt out of all the people she deserved this she deserved favor she deserved second chance more than anyone and i imagine she might have felt like she sacrificed a lot in her life i did see her with a man i don't think she had any kids she probably lived on the island her whole life serving in the church and for that she was like i i deserve to be father paul's right hand woman to be his henchman to be you know right there for him to guide him uh quote unquote guide slash manipulate him into making sure that his plan stays on track and i always end up or i always will be second in command bev was out of control she's the character you love to hate another reason why i loved this particular show is because I feel when people capture religion, it's either, you know, where it's like super evil, like horror movie. It doesn't, They, I mean, I guess I haven't seen anything where it just really captures the imper- imperfections of the faithful and that the humanity of the faithful and believers and, and anyone that, you know, believes in a in a faith in a god or whatever they show religious perfection and not the the actual difficulties or the narrow road uh, of faith there's the expectation of religious perfection and sometimes you feel like you can't measure up to the sort of christianity or christians they're presenting on tv I I did like the betrayal, the the sort of struggle, the sort of the good and the bad of it. In a way that was really well done. It's Bev is the personification of like fakeness. Bev outwardly uh and and this is anyone that is has ever been part of a Christian community, been in the church, um they know people like Bev. They outwardly wear the mask of religious perfection, but inside, and when no one's looking, they're just as flawed, if not more flawed, than the people that they're judging. Because Bev, Bev was something else. Um, it's the illusion of religious perfection that a, a lot of people, and I, you know what? I guess it's not so much in the media, but I think I see it more in my everyday life, like growing up and uh, just in in people and and spending time in the church and growing up and seeing that that there is this uh, illusion of religious perfection or they make it seem like faith is easy and it's not and they make it seem it's easy so you should be it should be easy for you to have faith it should be easier for you to believe it should be easy for you to not sin but it's like I mean, if you have people being prostitutes in the Bible and, <laughs> and you know, like in the olden times, people sinning and having out of wedlock like babies and murdering people and stealing. I mean, if it was, if, it, if people were doing it then and it seemed, you know, it was supposedly easier, you know, unquote, quote, unquote, easier back in the day, but it is, it is, uh, it's 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 crazy out here now then 
it's, it's this false illusion that it's easy and it's not because I, I feel like our default as humans as humanity our default is not perfection and that in our human nature and humanity we are born flawed and so this idea of chasing of trying to achieve this religious perfection um, is something we'll never be able to achieve and that you're set up to fail and you're set up to to think that something is wrong with you because you fail and that it's in our nature to fail. We're we're not supposed perfection doesn't exist. Okay, let's just come out with that. Perfection doesn't exist. There it's 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 not real. And you're made to feel like this religion religious perfection is something you're going to be able to achieve. And you're not. So it gets a lot of people caught up. It gets a lot of people feeling guilty. It gets a lot of people feeling bad that they can't do it or that they're not doing as they're not doing this whole thing as well as other people. But thing is, they're not doing it well either. No one's doing it well. Everyone's lying. Everyone's cheating. Everyone's sinning because our default of human nature were flawed. That this religion, religious perfection is unattainable, unachievable. It's not supposed to be um, achieved. It's impossible. You know, but it's not attainable. It's not sustainable. I think that's important. I, I think you can try. You can do it for a little bit, but Nowadays, I think it's near impossible to sustain it on any level. And it reminded me of um, the this episode on The Good Place, which is also on Netflix. Um, I believe it's four seasons and it's done. The show's done. All four seasons are on Netflix now. But this particular episode of The Good Place, season three, episode 11, Judge Jen acknowledges uh, that humans are at a disadvantage in moral decision making. And then uh, Michael tells this story about the tomato. So Michael tells the judge, uh, he's a character on the show. If you haven't seen The Good Place, you need to watch it. It's hilarious. It's really one of those shows that it's a comedy. Uh, it really makes you think. It made me think and, and look at think about my faith and religion in, in a very uh, poignant, very, uh, I feel like I mispronounced that, in a very uh, good way, a way that I need to look at. And it just made me think about it, faith and religion and belief. But anyway, it's a good show. So Michael tells the judge, it's almost impossible to be good enough to get into the good place. The good place is I would say it's symbolic of like heaven, you know. Um, he goes on to say, buying a tomato, humans think they they're making just one choice, but they're actually making dozens of choices. They choices they don't even know that they're making. You know, you think of just buying a tomato at the supermarket, but then it's like, oh, you're contributing global warming, um, exploitive labor. 
that just made me think of more about how it's really how difficult it is to to do the right things and to walk the narrow path of the to to faithful the um the sort of narrow path of of moral righteousness or you know like doing the right thing and and uh being a good christian and how difficult it is and you can't you can't do it all the time you can't be it all the time and you definitely can't be uh perfect at it because it's just there's so there's so many things to think about it's overwhelming at times so many things to think about when you are wanting to do or trying to do the right thing but closing quote of another great uh, mini series that is, I don't know if it's still on Netflix. It was on Netflix called Unorthodox. The main character, um, her name is Esti, is uh, from an Orthodox Jewish community. And she one day decides that today is the time and she needs to escape her community and live her her life on her own terms and sort of find herself and and find um the life that she wants because she realizes I mean I think she always knew that her life that she was she didn't like her life in the community and she was unhappy and she didn't like the way things were um so she finally leaves and she escapes and when her new friends ask her why she left Esty replies God expected too much of me um, we are at the end of this episode don't forget to follow me on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts just search for Juncture Podcast and you'll see the logo you can also find me on Twitter at Juncture Podcast thanks for listening And I hope y'all tune in next time.